0: Tell your story, build your brand, artmedianorthwest.com, A-R-T-M-E-D-I-A-N-W.com. Enjoy this conversation with Michael Calloway, part one of two. Michael. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks for being on the podcast. Absolutely. When did you start learning music and what did you listen to at the time?
1: I guess there's a couple of different answers I could give to that question, but sure. at least I think when it in earnest happened was when I was 13 and started playing the guitar. I had done choir in elementary school, but uh, I don't know that I really count that. Like, I definitely learned stuff. Yeah, for um, sure. You know, and I, it's funny, I've been finding myself going back to uh, things that I learned in elementary school music class to help me teach my elementary school aged kids when I'm teaching. And right. I've realized that's been Help. I I teach guitar lessons. Yes, you do. Star guitars.
0: You're an excellent teacher. Well, thank you. As are you. Oh, thanks. You're kind of in charge of like keeping the lesson stuff moving smoothly, right? In a
1: way, yeah. I like. I think the main official function that I have with lessons from my kind of staff capacity at the shop is making sure that those like our VIP reservations that those are always kind of extended out as far as they can be. So that's usually every month at the beginning of the month doing that, and then. I'd say I, I tend to act as a as a, a bit of a shield for, you know, certain kinda issues when like people on the floor kinda get fed up with a lesson related thing I can usually kinda swoop in there and help get
0: things settled. Kinda of mighty mouse. Well, like <laughs> a little bit, a little bit, yeah. But, so how many instruments have you dabbled with over the years? You know, it's uh
1: mostly been guitar. Yeah. I you know, based on the fact that I can play the guitar I know where the notes are on a bass so I can you know kind of mess around with that a little bit but I don't consider myself a bass player okay I sing I know where all the notes are on a keyboard but you can ask my wife like my hand technique on the piano was apparently pretty funny <laughs> um but when did you decide to teach guitar the first time that I taught guitar was so I started playing when I was 13, and I think the first actual lessons I gave were when I was 14. My best friend growing up, well, and still one of my best friends today, he has two younger brothers, and they both kind of got interested in the guitar a little after I did. And so I, I air quoted taught, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, because it was I could kind of just regurgitate the lessons that I was getting at the time, sure. but you know, I realized but it, it didn't go great. Like neither of them played the guitar and neither of them really stuck with it. And I think that I think I was not the best teacher when I was 14. I think I'm a lot better now. I'm sure you Uh, are. Yeah. But I mean, I think, you know, in terms of like really deciding that that was kind of how I wanted to spend a really good amount of my time was, uh, doing uh hillsborough parks and rec school of now it's camp amp but back then it was school of rock right you know because that was the first like real teaching job that i had was just that summer in between you know i think my first and second years at oregon state joff called me and was just like hey you want a job for two weeks teaching because apparently they were short on guitar teachers and so he called me in and I think I did all right.
0: Yeah, definitely. Do you prefer original or cover bands for uh, your own enjoyment and as far as what you like to play? For playing, I enjoy both. I've
1: definitely spent the majority of my band experience playing in bands that were writing original songs, maybe did a cover here or there, but, you know, primarily were working on originals. When I was... In college, there were a couple of little kind of jazz combos that I did with some friends that, you know, those were primarily, those were exclusively covers. They weren't any original music. Um, And that was fun, too. Were the jazz standards, or? Some of them were. Okay. You know, and then we kind of branched out from there. You know, we would do some, we would do Chameleon, but then we'd kind of branch out into doing, like, some Stevie Wonder tunes that are great. I wouldn't necessarily call them jazz standards, Right. Or 25 or 6 to 4
0: by Chicago Chicago, is one that I remember. It's kind of rock, but it's got that, (laughs) like, horn section. Did the place and time that you grew up have an impact on how you learned? I think
1: so. You know, I think growing up in... So I grew up in Hillsborough, not too far from here. And so it was, you know, cool kind of being, you know, not too far from the city so that, you know, those big kind of monumental acts, like, were still within reach and not like a four or five hour drive to and from, but, you know, just 30 minutes down 26 and then probably spending 20 minutes finding parking. Um,
0: (laughs) that's always fun,
1: you know, but I think it, I think it definitely had an impact, especially to just like, if it wasn't for living in this area, I wouldn't have had the the teachers that I've had. Um, you know, I would have had different teachers and, and it probably still would have worked out fine, but I'm certainly very grateful for the the teachers and the musicians that I've gotten to work with.
0: What mentors did you have along the way that come to mind?
1: Yeah. So I had, I'm try- I was, it was funny. I was trying to do a mentalist of all the teachers that I've had that I can remember. Cause the first place that I did lessons at was, uh, what's up music on, okay. on main street in Hillsborough, which is now I think an art supply shop. And, uh, they kind of leased out or not leased out, but they kind of contracted out their lesson space to, uh, I believe it was American Guitar Academy, which I think was run by a guy named Andy. And they Yeah, you know, I had a lot of really great teachers there, but it was I, I didn't didn't really have a lot of consistency from one teacher to another. Like I never had any of those teachers for, you know, longer than four or five months and then just, you know, stuff would kinda happen. Like they'd graduate high school and go off to college and then they weren't around anymore. Uh, but I can remember my very first guitar teacher was a woman named Christine but I cannot remember her last name for the life of me then I remember having a guy named James and I remember him because he taught me that this little bit of the master of puppets solo like this was before I even listened to Metallica or really cared who they were but it was like that little the, da, da,
0: da, da. Yeah.
1: I still know how to play that yes yeah, it's, it's a it's, cool piece yeah. yeah and then I had a uh I think the lo- the teacher I had for the longest there was a guy named Andrew Magnuson who actually just lived like right down the street from me growing up anyways. And he was a really great teacher and I think he's still playing around. You know, but then I think the two biggest kind of musical or guitar mentors that I had probably came with, you know, Joff at Five Star Guitars and uh, Neil Grandstaff at Oregon State. You know, Joff was, I think Joff was the first teacher to really get me to understand how important the musicality was and and really get me to kind of focus my energy on doing more practical things to make everything better as opposed to just going home and learning this song and learning that song.
0: Can you talk about what you mean by the musicality? Yeah.
1: I did not know how to read music, like a lick of music, for probably about the first three or so years of my playing. And... You know, when I was taking lessons with Joff, that was where I first started to learn music theory. And, you know, he was he was the teacher. He wasn't the first teacher who told me I should learn to read music, but he was the one who got me to learn how to read music. He was, the, you know, the first one to get me to really play with a metronome because I think the very first time I did it, I... Did not have the in, the internal sense of rhythm that I thought I had, and I think it bruised my ego pretty hard. So I was just like, "This is clearly useless." Trying to just shield the the thoughts of like failure and embarrassment, right. but it was I just didn't have rhythm. You're not um, the only
0: guitar player to ever face that.
1: <laughs> I can tell you. Oh, certainly You're not. You're good
0: company, man.
1: Well, and you know now when I teach lessons and I you know get to a point where I you know I'm working with metronomes or telling a student to go home and work with a metronome, I just I'm like, just be prepared. If it doesn't feel good while you're doing it, just kind of work through it. If, if you're having trouble sticking to it, just keep going. It's, it's not going to be immediately easy, but the more you do it, it'll become a lot simpler to do and a lot easier to keep along with. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. And then, you know, getting into music theory, uh, he, that was, he was my, the very first teacher I had who really got me into music theory, which I'm so grateful for cause I'm, I love music theory. Yeah. Um
0: it's pretty awesome. It's yeah, it's incredible. It's um, a one thing about that as a guitar player is the way that it's taught at the university and in schools is not what we use on the guitar necessarily all the time. Like yeah. the four part Bach chorale style right. SATB <laughs> yeah. like you're really right. not doing those kind of voice leading principles right now as no. a guitar player. No. Like parallel fifths are cool.
1: Right. Yeah. It was, that was one of the funniest things I remember. I think that was, that was either the year I was at PCC or the year that my first year at Oregon State doing theory. But I just remembered like learning that kind of, you know, voice leading 101 parallel fifths and octaves bad, right? like not allowed. And then. When I kind of realized what those were on the guitar, right. it's like,
0: wait a minute, thi- I'm using thi- these on the time. This is most of what I do. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> this, is, this is almost exclusively what I do. <laughs> yeah, but you know, getting me to learn how to read music, I think was a, a big thing, and it's and it's also something that I've you know taken with me and recognized that it's like, if there's something that a student doesn't want to learn, they're not going to learn it unless I show them why it's valuable to know it. Because for me, the very first time that I, back when I was at lessons with AGA, and again, you know, those were lessons with, you know, kids who were, you know, 17, 18 years old. And so I think in terms of like, you know, really having command over like, we're going to learn this. It was just kind of like, I don't want to do that. All right, we'll do this instead. (laughs) You know, which is, which is not a bad thing necessarily. But you know, my, my internal logic when I was like, I'm not going to learn how to read music was I've already learned how to play a couple of like KISS and ACDC songs from Tab, so this just seems like a waste of time. Right. Um, like, I've already gotten that figured out. Right. That 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 took like 20 minutes to figure out, you know, the, the basics of Tab. <laughs> this, is, this is like learning new stuff. Like, this. nah, nah. Right. Yeah. But Why? Yeah. And so I remember when I was getting towards the end of high school with, with you know, my lessons with Joth, you know, I got a lot more serious about the idea of studying music in college. And, you know, so I shared that with him at the beginning of the lesson. And he, I think his, probably not verbatim, but what I remember his response was, that's great, bud, got to learn how to read. So that was what we did that day. And I was like, okay, like, I need to do this. I can't put it off anymore. Nope. So let's do it.
0: Yeah. No, it's a big part of it. Oh, yeah. Well, you know the joke, right? How do you get a guitar player to turn down? You put sheet
1: music in front of him. There
0: you go. And how do you
1: get him to run out of the room screaming? (laughs) He's got to play and like, we're going on. You're playing that.
0: You got no time to prepare. Nice.
1: Yeah, well, and I'm still I'm I'm an awful sight reader.
0: Well, uh, there's a apparently drummers uh, wake up in a cold sweat in fear of having to play the black page, which is a Frank Zappa thing, I believe. Okay, which is like it's called the black page because yeah. it's largely covered in ink. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, a, it's a lot of stuff to yeah to count and read and oh, everything for sure yeah so you should uh, look that up yeah or that... have you seen the fairies air and death waltz no that's not. hilarious so yeah. look that up when you get a yeah, chance absolutely you, in your opinion what are some of the best ways that someone could learn how to develop the skills that you've cultivated i think
1: lessons are a great way to start i think it's obviously going to vary from person to person because you know what works for You know, one person isn't necessarily going to work for another. But I think education generally is a pretty good way to go with understanding most things, whether it's skill building or kind of conceptual stuff. I think, you know, education is a really important part of that. You know, I think for every great kind of self-taught musician, there's like 19 awful ones who just didn't have anyone to, you know, be there to be like, you know, that's flat. At least you know. 19. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: Right. Maybe more.
1: You know, and I think especially for me as a guitar player and especially, you know, being the guitar player that I was the first couple of years of playing where I just really didn't have any musical literacy. Then I kind of took that on, you know, when I went into music school as this kind of chip on my shoulder of I'm the idiot who decided to go into music school with the guitar you know and all these other people you know know how to read and whatever so like I gotta you know work extra hard to show that like musically I know what's happening right because it's it's really easy to get reasonable technical skill on the guitar without really understanding the musicality of it or at least or at least getting enough of a technical skill that you you feel like you're really
0: good well I think also it's it's important that there are different ways to learn, right? So mm-hmm. if you didn't go to the university for music, but you spent twice as much time practicing and yeah. you played along with like every record you could find mm-hmm. at the library even oh, yeah. you'd be awesome. Like yeah. Hendrix and the Beatles oh, were yeah. awesome. Oh yeah. They didn't read. No, exactly. But they spent a lot
1: of time on it, you know. Well, and that was the thing was they wouldn't necessarily to be able to speak that musicality necessarily or maybe like I don't know I've never talked to them but at least from those kind of general stereotypes and kind of understanding sure you know Hendrix might not have known to call a Hendrix chord a 7 sharp 9 right Um, but he didn't need to like it was even if he can't speak the, the theoretical behind it he could hear it and he could articulate it really cleanly Um, and I think that was the thing for me was that I was not good at that You know, it was, I needed to learn kind of that harmonic structure before I understood the reason that everything I'm writing right now sounds the same is because everything is going one to four. (laughs) So I need to try something different because when I'm just going off of quote unquote feel, I keep doing the same thing over and over. Right. So I need to, you know... Spice
0: it up a little, try something different. Yeah, yeah. I
1: need to be able to go over to the bookshelf and see that there's something else to read. Sure, You know, something yeah. else I can try. And, yeah. you know, maybe it's not going to work. Maybe if I go to the from the one to the five instead, and maybe that's not right for that song, maybe it's perfect for that song. Yeah, um, could be a pop song. Yeah, so I think, you know, education lessons, but I think however you're going to go about learning those skills, like... Really going into it. Mm -hmm. You know, because I can compare, you know, as much as I can find all the little bad habits that I've had over the course of my being involved with music. Learning how to draw was something that three or four times in my life I wanted to do, and then I just didn't enjoy it enough to put in the passion that it required. Yeah, it Um, takes a lot.
0: Yeah. Because you're training your hands to do things that. Mm -hmm. you want to see you know right and it's the same with a guitar or with an instrument Mm -hmm. you know yeah
1: and I think it's just a lot more sonically fun to just slam on the open strings as opposed (laughs) to just take a pen and just kind of scribble everywhere and just see what kind of cacophonous mess you've come up with. right yeah you
0: have to make a lot of messes before it starts sounding good or looking like something how should people go about finding their passion or starting their creative life
1: that's a good question yeah um
0: it could be yeah,
1: <laughs> you know, I think, yeah, in terms of finding your passion, I think just trying a bunch of different things, which is funny for me to say because I'm just so not that person. Um, well, you maybe didn't have to go
0: about it that right. way. Right, I didn't have
1: to go about it that way, but, you know, if if you can't just kind of find it cohesively and naturally, you know, trying a bunch of different things. Um, you know, and as far as starting your creative life I think you know it's it's kind of hard for me to say because when I started playing the guitar it wasn't it was just this thing that I that I did it was just this thing that I did that I enjoyed that I really was really really into and so I didn't really have a you know start necessarily as much as you know I got a guitar was in lessons and just playing whatever I felt like You know, but yeah, in terms of starting your creative life, I think setting time aside to do it, because even now, you know, doing music and it's not the thing that I do after I've come home from school to unwind, it's a very big part of the work that I do Mm -hmm. that I come home from. So I think my relationship with it has changed in that sense. But sure, you know, but I've found that when I do set that time aside, it's. You know, a lot easier to hold myself accountable to that as opposed to like get home and eat dinner, and then I'm just kind of like, eh, it'd be really nice to just kind of sit on the couch and watch some TV and not really do anything. But, you know, making that kind of commitment to put time into it, I think, is, is really valuable. And just equipping yourself with the knowledge and skills you think you need to know to have it. If you, as you find your passion and are starting your creative life, if you, you know, find people, who, you know, in, inspire you or do the things that you want to do and do them way better than you do right now. Like those are people to introduce yourself to and, you know, make their acquaintance because like that was the very first thing I heard in a guitar shop when I was going to get a guitar was surround yourself with musicians who are better than you. Yeah. So I always kind of make the joke. It's like strive to be the worst person in your band. Um, <laughs> that's,
0: that's a good place to know. be, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but,
1: you know, because, yeah, it, it tied into there was a quote from a I think it was sports night was an Aaron Sorkin show but one of the like managerial people he he had a quote that was if you're stupid surround yourself with smart people if you're smart surround yourself with smart people who disagree with you (laughs) and I and I love that idea that it's just like you know if you want to get better at the thing surround yourself with people who are better at the thing if you feel like you've gotten really good at whatever it is you're trying to do, surround yourself with people who do it in different ways or go about it in different ways. Yeah, that's big. Yeah, I think... So, I mean, there's a lot of different ways that you can go about that.
0: They say that in all the business Mm -hmm. books and courses, too. It's like, if you're the smartest... If you're running a business and you're the smartest person in that business, you're not doing it right. Like, you definitely want people smarter than you working Mm -hmm. for you doing stuff. How has technology changed music and the creative arts?
1: I would say profoundly
0: yeah i you know it's
1: been such an interesting kind of time to you know come into like now just firmly adulthood like past young adulthood is just adulthood now because yeah when i when i started playing guitar youtube didn't exist yet which is weird to think about it is yeah but tab sites did exist and that was a that was a huge thing for me like sure you know, the the lesson where I kind of learned what tab was and how to read it is, like, I went home and I pulled up a tab for, like, 50 different songs yeah. that, like, that day I was just... And, you know, of course, I had been playing for a couple of weeks at this point, so I was pulling open, <laughs> like, Deuce by Kiss Um, and could get, like, a little bit of it. But it was something. It right. was something, right. you know, and then I remember one of the first ones that I did that was like super easy was there's was this song by Kiss called War Machine. Um, Kiss was the band that got me into the guitar, like, and so that's where a lot of those early experiences are going to be kind of wrapped around that Sure. Um, but there's a song, War Machine, that I think was on Creatures of the Night, but I saw them do it live a couple months after I'd started playing the guitar, but it's this really Simple riff that drives the the intro and the chorus, and you know it's it's just all E string stuff. And it's like I've used that in lessons to demonstrate tab because it's just this a like, bum 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 bum. So it's like mostly open E hits with just moving your fingers down to the seventh and back to the fifth, down to the third, back to the fifth. So it's you know it's like that was one that it was like oh my gosh I can I can do the thing. This is great. <laughs> this is great. But you know I think so I think in terms of like how I've gotten to learn the instrument. And even, you know, still to this day, it's like now YouTube exists and there's so much music to find everywhere and there's so many different people, you know, online who are, are just like, you know, let, let me teach you. Like, I, you know, here's my YouTube channel or here's my website and let me show you all the things you need to know about, you know, being a guitar player. And I think that's super cool. And I think it's a really nice supplement to, you know, those kind of individual one-on-one lessons. Because, you know, the thing that the the joke I always make is, like, the YouTube video won't tell you when you're out of tune. Right. Um, (laughs) You know, unless your ear can pick up on the fact that you're
0: really out of tune. Right. Or when you're bending the strings if you're playing a chord or something and it sounds sharper.
1: No, absolutely. And I think just in terms of, you know, media consumption, you know, listening to music is just such a different experience now because I was in middle school when I got really into music and so I had had my disc man and my headphones like my ov- the the ones that were like over ear but kind of but then they didn't wrap around the top of your head they would kind of go behind sure I and, remember those yeah oh uh, they were great except they were really uncomfortable and sounded like crap but they were great um <laughs> nostalgia right right but exactly. you know so I'd just be walking to school with like three or four different jewel case CD cases, you know, in my backpack, which of course all got destroyed, but the CDs were okay. You know, so it was, you know, lots of walking to, you know, walking to school and listening to stuff and then, you know, getting an iPod. And it was like, now I don't have to break all those jewel cases. Right. I can just, I can break this instead. No, (laughs) (laughs) but, but I do think there's also a certain bit of, of a detachment that I felt, you know, just like it, you know, I can remember
0: with the iPod as opposed to, well, and
1: with, you know, MP3s and streaming and stuff. And it's not a, I wouldn't say it's an inherently bad thing. It's a thing that I miss, you know, that sensation of going into, you know, a store that, you know, whether it was like a proper, like record store or just the CD section at Fred Meyer or target, but, you know, kind of sifting through and then seeing something that piqued your interest. And then, you know, grabbing that and having it, and, you know, if it was, you know, depending on the car you were driving in, because, you know, back when not all the cars that, you know, my family would have had, had CD players in it, and now probably none of them do, because they don't need them, but, you know, doing, you know, like, getting to listen to it, like, on the drive home, right, getting that little taste of, like, tracks one, two, and three, and then, you know, going home and popping it in the stereo for, you know, four through, however long it was, or just having to sit there you know, studying the album art, you know, maybe looking through the lyric book. That's be- another yeah.
0: thing is just, yeah, the album art is sort of a lost thing now yeah. in, in a lot of ways, which is, uh, you know, that used to be a big part of it. Yeah. And sometimes people, you know, like listening to an A side of a record and a B side of a right. record and stuff like that, and mm-hmm. then like looking at the liner notes and kind of mm-hmm. learning about the songs and the craft of yeah. how it, it all came together.
1: At the same time, it's like, I think it's, yeah, it's a, I'll try to keep it short because I could go, on and on about this topic because I, I yeah, I had a couple of different papers I did in college for different classes that were kind of centered around this idea, but you know, as I think the the biggest kinda double-edged sword with it as someone who's you know wanting to make a career in music is it's never been easier to get your music published and available for consumption that is at the fingertips of billions of people. It's also never been harder to get anyone to give a care <laughs> about it, you know, cause it's, it's true, man. Yeah. And it's, it's that kind of thing where, you know, and how it's affected genre where you can get really hyper focused with tastes now, right. You know, when, you know, cause like, yeah, growing up, it was like, I was listening to mostly, you know, top 40 radio when I was a, you know, a kid. And then, you know, when I got into Kiss, that kind of gave way to getting into lots of classic rock. And then, you know, from there, it just kind of expanded out all across the board. You know, there's really not any genres I can think of off the top of my head that, like, I haven't been able to find a song that I can find valuable, that I can find enjoyment out of. But, yeah, it's just everybody's in the game now. Yeah. You know, as opposed to... Because, yeah, I mean... You know we're recording this right now on a you know a really great but simple setup and I mean we grab my phone, record something on voice recorder of just us singing off key or whatever, put it up online, and we just published a wrote recorded and published a song in a couple of minutes. Now it wasn't right. a good song, right? Like right. you know to, to make something really good, you know you have to sift through all this sure stuff now, and I, and I think for me, it, I I haven't adjusted and adapted to it very well where i've had a much harder time kind of finding new music that i can really get excited about but i think some of it too is just it's kind of like with netflix when it's like there's so many things to choose from right. you just end up not choosing anything or you just choose the thing whatever that you, you, or the thing <laughs> that, you know it, it it's you know it's like i'll pull up spotify and he'll just look, look through all these artists and it's like you know i haven't heard of them haven't heard of them i oh, don't nothing's really grabbing me I'll just go listen to Appetite for Destruction again. Like, it's fine. <laughs> um, like, I I know I enjoy that, and I'll right. enjoy it still. Sure, um, sure. But, yeah.
0: Nice. What is a song or album that you would recommend listening to? I've really
1: come to... In, there, are, there are specific singer-songwriters who have really come to enjoy over the last decade or so. You know, Warren Zevon was someone who a friend... Had recommended to me when I was fifteen or sixteen, and listened to a couple of songs and really didn't get it, and then heard one of his songs on like a TV show, and I was like, oh, this is awesome. So then I, you know, went and found it, and um, so yeah, his his self-titled one is, I love that album. Excitable Boy is incredible too. Those are those are the two that i if, you know, he's he's got this unbelievable ability to you know, in one song, you know, kind of just have these, like, really kind of vague vague but very rooted in history kind of, you know, ballad songs, like like his self-titled opens with the ballad of Frank and Jesse James, and it's just, you know, a song about Frank and Jesse James, you know, the outlaws, Um, but kind of, I hesitate to say from a sympathetic view, but from a more, like, not viewing them as, you know, that law is bad, ugh, but just kind of like as the outlaws who were, you know, people and people are complicated. And then, you know, on a dime, he'll turn and it'll just be like this really grotesque, dark humor that I kind of love too. And then, you know, the next track, he might just be like tugging at your heartstrings with something just really heartfelt and beautiful. And it never feels jarring to go from one to the next. He He's able to really do all these different things, um, you know, from a lyrical standpoint, from a musical standpoint, a lot of it's one, four, five. Yeah. Um, which it's funny. There are some songs where I look them up and it's like, Oh, it's, you know, it's one, four, five, you know, meaning it like, it's a really simple chord progression. But then there's other ones that I li- that I look them up or try to learn them by ear. And I expect them to be something so much more nuanced or complicated. And then it's just that. And so it's, it, and then I end up having like a lot more respect for it because I'm like, how did you get something so awesome out of, you know, chords that have just been, you know, beaten
0: to death by so many. And for good reason, like they sound good. Like, well, I, I think of that when I listen to like bluegrass players mm-hmm. play. Because yeah. they're playing GC&D and they are doing a lot yeah. of interesting, <laughs> yeah. fascinating stuff with it. And it's just yeah. like, man, I play mm-hmm. those chords and I don't know how you're finding all that Nuance in there. It's Um,
1: amazing. Another another singer-songwriter I really like is Leon Russell, um, who I did have the the fortune to go see him live, I think three times before he died. Um, But, you know, he just... Like, he's kind of the the guy in the shadows on so many just incredible records from the 60s and the 70s. Um, Like, he played keys on... um, like this is not an example of like oh if you want to understand Leon Russell go listen to this he was the uh, he was the keys player on Monster Mash
0: oh really yeah wow yeah huh. um which that actually is a kind of a cool yeah keyboard part it's it's it well it yeah it's it's
1: fascinating just because it's like you don't expect you know you don't expect him to turn up there but he turns up everywhere when you just comb like the the you know the personnel and the liner notes
0: discography of, kind of thing or yeah
1: um like he he led Joe Cocker's uh Mad Dogs and Englishman band which is really cool and all his solo stuff is great. As far as kind of more like uh you know kind of local people and whatever um you know Love Sloth is great. They're the album they put out is really cool. There's a band that I knew that Nathan worked with them more closely in Corvallis um but they were called the Max M-A-C-K-S, um, which they always spell that out at their shows to make sure people know how to spell it. Cause, <laughs> um, but they're really cool. There's probably more that are going to come to me that I'm just going to blurt them out. Like <laughs> there you go, randomly. Later. Yeah.
0: <laughs> like you're a, you're a Tourette's music person or something.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's more of just that it's like, it's it's kind of that thing of like, you know, having the, like, the perfect comeback a day later. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Know, yeah. It's, it's That's
0: the only that time kind of it comes day. to me, I yeah. think. Yeah. Is creativity or skill more important as an artist?
1: You know, I think it's a really good question. It is a little bit chicken and egg in the sense that, you know, and and I think it kind of depends on, you know, what you want to do. If you want to be, you know, this conceptual artist, like, you know, Yoko Ono-esque, you know, it's not that I'm going to say there's a lack of skill there, but there's certainly a, a surplus of creativity. Like, you know, sure. Um... And so if that's the kind of thing that you're wanting to do, then I would say, you know, creativity is probably more important there. If it was like, you know, I'm wanting to be in this, you know, speed metal band and or, you know, play, you know, neo-funk fusion jazz, whatever, like really intricate stuff. Like if you don't have the, the skill, it's going to be really hard to keep up there. But I think if you're at one of those ends, you know, and pretty well, like, you know, you feel way more in the skill technique, like you got that down, but the creativity part doesn't come, or you're on the flip side of that. It always kind of has to come back to meet in that middle, yeah. because even if you're, I think it was James Hetfield talking about the Black Album where he said, you know, that was, you know, we kind of realized that it's like no matter what we do, there's always gonna be someone who comes along who's gonna be faster than us. Sure. And, you know, so if we can't be the fastest, like if we can't be the best at being fast, what can we be the best at you know and spinal
0: tap was already <laughs> England's loudest band so, exactly yeah.
1: you know but so so for me it's like you know I, th- I think one of them without the other can be pretty dull right but I think it's you know if you feel like you're more on one side than the other work to get that other one better and you know I've definitely gone through that where I think when I was younger and I didn't really have a whole lot of skill I think I had an easier time being creative or being kind of uninhibited with, you know, creating ideas, not being, not knowing as much about, you know, when I try an idea, you know, kind of being able to recognize, like, that I should just move on from it. Now I'm certainly a much better guitar player, you know, technically, um, and and in some ways creatively too, but I don't have that lack of inhibition of like, just kind of jumping into an idea. Just trying
0: stuff. Yeah,
1: or at least, you know, trying something and not immediately rejecting it because it's like, oh, that sucked, you know?
0: Yeah. Um, Sometimes those things suck just because they're almost there, right. you know, and, and they mm-hmm. really don't suck. They're yeah. really kind of awesome, mm-hmm. but they're just not quite awesome yet. Yeah. What are some difficult times that you faced as an artist? Um, You know, I think
1: <laughs> other than being a teenager and not being as good as I thought I was and, you know, getting those ego slaps and kind of, receding to myself when I, you know, having those moments. I think right after I graduated college, was pretty tough. I'd gotten my music degree, which was, again, a huge accomplishment for, for me. And it was that, you know, that chip on my shoulder that I had, you know, all the way through that music program. And I wasn't the only guitar player in there. I don't want to give off that impression. There were plenty of other people doing the guitar, but I was just that mangy, kid in the ACDC t-shirt who was crashing the music theory course or the uh intro to western music history so I graduated and that was like a really cool big thing I stuck around Corvallis for a year while I was waiting for uh, my wife Mariah to uh to finish up her schooling and graduate uh she was my fiance back then now we're married and um but you know a big part of why I stayed in Corvallis, too, was my my college band, which was uh, called Black Market Bargain, and I think the tough thing with that was between, um, like, I had a really tough time finding work.
0: Not a lot of work in Corvallis, I don't think. No, and, you know, and it was the kind of thing that I remembered
1: a lot of people while I was in college, you know, like, faculty and staff, you know, telling me that it's like, you know, as long as you have a four-year degree, it's like, you're usually pretty fine, which, (laughs) huh no that was not the experience I had it was like you know I always kind of related it to the like you know I'd pull up a craigslist ad entry level position five years experience required you know just that kind of like I can't get the experience because I can't get the job because I don't have the experience that I can't get so you know I was dealing with that and the black market bargain which was the band that kind of you know, Crystal in Mexico City. Those were songs that got their start in in that band with, that I had with Nathan. There were five of us in the band, and then I graduated, and then in the span of like the next couple of months, it went from the five of us to just Nathan and I, and just from our drummer moved to Seattle, and then our bass player moved to Eugene, and he was still gonna try and make it work, but he was doing uh. Like Dish TV installs, I think, and his schedule was super erratic, so he just could not make a regular practice schedule. And then our our singer uh, moved to Yakima, Washington, because um, his uh, fiance was doing a program, I think, at the the Wazoo campus out there. And you know, and he had I think he'd gotten laid off from his his job in Corvallis, so like really didn't have any reason to stay. And so it was just you know almost a year of just you know not being in a band like still being in a like you know still working on stuff with nathan but not having a job and just not really kind of being able to you know like i just gotten that music degree and i was so excited about it and then i had nothing i could do with it it's
0: just like a gut punch right yeah
1: yeah and so that was i definitely was dealing with a lot of depression at that time and i've had depression for it for years it's something that I have but that year was particularly difficult in spite of the fact that I also got engaged around that time and my wife graduated college and then we got to move up here which was nice and then you know things kind of got rolling up up here but it was just really hard just kind of being at home every day with all the free time in the world and then just having applying to job after job and not here and back. Like, what I ended, I I was teaching a few hours a week at a place in Albany, and then at a place in Tigard. Like, i just drive up, because it was a teaching job I could get anywhere. But I'd say that was probably the, the toughest time. I mean, I think, you know, being in a band, it's, it's always, you know, there's always those difficulties of just, you sure. know, trying to manage five schedules, and, and five personalities, and you know yeah. five sets of wants and desires but but th- that that kind of comes with the territory it's a lot easier to kind of for me to adapt to that but just that kind of like having just having all that kind of time and not being able to f- find things to to do with it and then not feeling motivated to do
0: anything with it oh. yeah yeah that's tough yeah but you made it through yeah how? yeah so how have you learned to overcome adversity i think it generally is going to be
1: kind of specific to whatever the adversity is um but you know in general i think it's a yogi berra quote maybe it's not it was the 90 percent of life is showing up it was one that my dad was a big fan of um yeah and and particularly you know when i was in high school my depression was really bad and like my freshman and sophomore years were basically just kind of lost. I probably was in school as many days as I wasn't. Wow. And... um, it's a
0: tough age for kids.
1: Yeah. no, for sure. And, you know, and I think for me, it was, I didn't really understand that it was, like, depression. Because one, I just didn't really understand what that was. But two, I just kind of also understood that kind of trope of, like, you know, moody, mopey teenagers and, you know, kind of all that stuff. But and so that was the kind of thing that I think my dad especially like drilled that quote into my head just because like 90% of my life at that time was not showing up. But it, it has been that kind of thing is that it's like if I can, you know, will myself to get going, it it tends to go all right. Um, I mean, I think even like when I went to music school at Oregon State, I had uh, done a year at PCC before I transferred over to Oregon State. And so I did music theory there. And that was kind of one, to get my GPA back up, because again, freshman and sophomore years were pretty rough. I got mostly A's and a few B's my junior and senior years, and I still didn't even crack a two eight on my GPA. Like, freshman and sophomore years were rough. And you know, so I did a year at PCC to get my GPA up, but also to see like, okay, I wanna try and take like a real college music course, and if I can, you know, hack it there, I'll get a music degree as opposed to getting a business degree while I do music stuff. In, in hindsight, a business degree probably wouldn't have been so bad, but.
0: Yeah, I think I think all musicians should learn business. Yeah. all artists for that matter.
1: Yeah, but so when I got to Oregon State, that first week in that music program, I had just gotten put into second year theory because I had done a year of theory at PCC, but definitely got into a lot of different stuff. So was super overwhelmed by like you know the first time that I was in, you know, second year theory. And kind of hearing like going through the syllabus and here's all the things that we are going to do and you know need to know how to do, and I'm just kind of looking down this list and I'm like I did so few of these at PCC, like I don't know how I'm gonna do this, and then you know doing a jazz improv class with Neil Grandstaff where, again it was just kind of hammering home that idea of like how am I gonna do this you know he he's he's such a sweetheart if you stick around for the whole class. At first, it can he can feel really intimidating because you know very serious and he's unbelievably talented. Just he's just unbelievable on the guitar. But it was the kind of thing where kept showing up, and things got better. And I think that's the thing is that when when things are really hard to do, it can get really easy to just not want to do them. And and I mean and again like I've had depression you know for a while and so there are some days where it's like I just literally can't get out of bed. Like I just can't do it but talking through stuff with neil grandstaff like the that first day in jazz improv which is kind of big group of a bunch of musicians and we just kind of go through jazz charts which again that was the first time i looked at a jazz chart right and it's It's (laughs) like okay i know what a g7 is but i don't get this triangle that you've put between them i don't know what that is and so it's like i was getting super intimidated by you know, just kind of everything. But then as we finished that first jazz improv class, I was kind of walking out. I don't know if Neil had just kind of done it just to be nice or whatever, or if he saw that like I was just deer in the headlights and just not, not hanging on for a lot of the songs that we did, you know, but he was just like, you know, hey, looking forward to seeing you on Thursday, which, you know, the next day we we're gonna have the, you know, the class and, you know, keep coming back. And just that kind of encouragement, you know, from someone who was like, had also just demonstrated was like, you know, how much time and effort really needs to be put into this to do this well. And uh, I remember he had a he had a thing that he said that first day, which was uh, if, if you sign up for this for for easy, don't. Oh, that was probably his guitar class, actually. But either way, with regards to music, he would say, don't sign up for this if you think it's going to be easy, because it's not. If you want easy, there's calculus classes you can go take. Um, <laughs> and because he was like, and people might not think calculus is easy, but like, you know, you've got reliable. It's a you little know, more. R- it's Clear. It's a lot more concrete and really rigid rules, whereas jazz is, and is is spelled I-Z-Z, right? <laughs> you know, it's another thing that he liked. It was a bumper sticker he saw that he always liked to talk about, that he just loved it. Um, but, so, yeah, it was just that, just showing up day after day it was, you know, really important, and, it, and it's not always easy, and, it, and, like, I can't always do it, but I've found that when I really can just be there mm-hmm. it tends to make the thing get easier
0: i think there's a thing called being present too that can help uh so it's not only being there but being mm-hmm. there is a good start but then yeah. being present where you're just right. like sort of open to what's going to happen even if it's a beat down which in jazz classes right. it, it often oh. is because it's, oh, yeah. it's not quite like whiplash it's no. <laughs> <laughs> just about to say yeah
1: Never, never got a chair thrown right. at me. Right, no. Um, nor nor did I ever get slapped to tell me if I was rushing or behind. Right. Um, God, J.K. Simmons is so good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, right. It, being there is not, I'm physically in the space, but I'm, like, on my phone playing Angry Birds. Right, you right. Know? God, that, people even still play that anymore? I don't know. I, don't know I, I really
0: am out of the loop yeah. as far as games on phones yes yeah, fair enough me too all right <laughs> what's funny is one of my teachers at portland state brian johanson gave us a syllabus for at the time the class was called harmonic and structural analysis cool <laughs> and he uh he gave us a false syllabus the first day that okay. had a bunch of names of things that we weren't going to do <laughs> and Everybody's looking and reading all of these things and has these really confused. Because we were, yeah. you know, you had to be a third or fourth year student to get into that yeah. class. And and nothing was really ringing a bell. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. what is this? <laughs> like, right. And he just started laughing after like a minute or so of everybody just looking like completely perplexed. Yeah. And yeah. he's like, just kidding. Here's the real syllabus. <laughs> and then he handed that out. I had a teacher kind of did that kind of probably not along the same lines but where I thought that was going kind of made
1: me think of this it was Sam Kincaid who was kind of running the like audio recording and engineering program there's like a three term kind of the whole year series course that you can do and the first term is entirely online and it's really dry of just reading these chapters out of the textbook and then taking a chapter test like it was monotonous I hated it it was just not my idea of a good time and so then you know I did the the next term where it's like we're actually in a classroom there's you know digital audio workstations in front of us like we're at you know computers Pro Tools is up it's it's great and or might have been Logic I think it's Pro Tools and so I asked him you know I was like that that first term was like really dry and just not enjoyable at all um and he's just like yeah (laughs) it's like You know, I get about a hundred people who sign up for, you know, that, that first term and we do not have close to that amount of like places to kind of have them, you know, stationed to kind of work on stuff. And he was like, yeah, usually about a hundred people sign up for that first term, about 10 sign up for the second term. And that's about the room we have. So kind of helps. Helps figure out, like, who really wants to do this because wow. you can't do that class unless you go through that slog of, of a textbook. Like, it was all relevant, useful information, but, you know, it was like there were four or five chapters about, like, room dimensions and, you know, how those affect sound in it and it's important stuff. Yeah. But that was where I kind of understood audio engineering is not going to be where my Focus skill set is. and expertise <laughs> lies.
0: Right, <laughs> But yeah.
1: No, the but the other the other two terms were super fun. Like, I I still talk to Sam. He, uh, I think he, he lives
0: nearby. Cool. Um, and I see him in the shop from time to time. So, yeah, nice. good dude. I like him. So, how should people develop their art and their vision? Yeah, if they're going to be an artist or if that's going to be part of it. Anyways. Yeah, I think as far as art,
1: you know, figure out, kind of what you want your vision to be and you know and it's be firm with it but not rigid in terms of like again especially if you're doing something creative with other people it's it's not mine it's ours right? right you know the same way that a relationship isn't about what I want and need but it's about what you know we want and need and so if you're gonna do it with other people be prepared to compromise on like that that vision and also be prepared to be confronted with ideas that are better than yours, you know, which can be a little bit of an ego bruise, especially if it happens like eight times in a row where you're just <laughs> like, now I'm just kind of like,
0: <laughs> what am I doing
1: here? <laughs> I'm just going to, I'm just going to strum here in the right. back, you know, but yeah. And I think that was a big thing. Cause again, talking about, you know, when I was in high school, having this very specific idea of what I wanted to do where it was like, You know, the name Black Market Bargain was one that I came up with, I think, right at the end of high school, and I had had the first couple of albums planned out of, like, here's what they're going to be. A couple of them had names. One of them was, I had a concept album that I wrote when I was going through high school that, you know, has largely since been abandoned because I think the concept, what it ended up being was just, there's some songs here, but Michael's really not great at tying them all together. But there's, like, there's some good ideas in there that have actually made their way into Mr. Pink songs. Like, not, not, none of them, like, the full thing all the way through, but... Sure,
0: just, like, an idea. Yeah,
1: you know, there's, there's this one thing that's in a song we do now that, this really pretty kind of like A major seven to E major thing that, you know, that ended up being a kind of middle eight or middle 16 of a song we had, which which like, you know, had it not been for me just trying it one day and well, having remembered that that song existed earlier in the day, kind of playing through it and remembering how a lot of it went, then playing that other song later in the day with, uh, you know, my band and then kind of just throwing one of those ideas right into the middle of it. And I was like, oh, that's what it needed. Like, but I think, you know, so being compromising with your vision, because like Black Market Barton put out no albums and that concept album wasn't even a thing I brought forward because, you know, a couple of years had passed and and I just kind of realized that, well, it, it didn't kind of fit the, the mutual vision of what we wanted to do, and I didn't really think there was a way to kind of properly augment it to make it fit that. It was just going to be... And, and again, like, as I got older and smarter, more musically literate, I could find more things that were things that I w- was willing to overlook when I was younger, and then as I got older, could kind of realize, like, eh, that's really not good. Like, that one <laughs> that, that, one that the, the A major 7 to E thing the chorus was a uh, C to G to a minor. And then I became like, I got more into Skinnerd, and the song simple man comes on and I'm like, Oh my God, that's the chorus to that song. <laughs> like <laughs> not anymore. It's not well, um,
0: but then you can play with the timing. Oh, for sure. Else, yeah. And, and I've, and I've
1: done that too, but I think, you know, yeah, being willing to compromise, but also, yeah, being flexible to, to change within yourself, you know, not getting so, you know, rootly rigid in your own idea without allowing yourself to kind of examine it and give it, you know, deeper thought.
0: Yeah, I think leaving like a little breathing room with an idea is cool. How well does society or the system work for people, for musicians and creative artists, in your opinion? Yeah, it's a certainly a
1: lot to unpack there.
0: Yeah. I think we're looking for your wisdom. Yeah. Your oh I'm
1: looking this. for it too. Yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I growing up my, my dad was a elementary school principal for the majority of my childhood. Um so I, you yeah, know, have a very strong affinity and respect for, you know, education. And I mean, he was incredible at his job and, you know, connected with so many people that it's like, you know, there are definitely flaws in the system for sure. But, you know, there are definitely people in there who do their best, you know, kind of with what they have and and do make some really positive impact. I think that that is one of my biggest things with, you know, without steering too far into like a heavy political discussion. Sure. You know, I think there's so many issues that probably wouldn't be issues as much if, if we, you know, really invested in education and really making that a powerful thing that really helps kind of prepare people for, for life where like, yeah. Oh, first time I did taxes. Oh, I was, man, I wish I had a tax class in high school. I would have hated it. Like oh, I would have hated sure. it, but I would have looked back on it as a, you know, as an older person and yeah. been like, you know what? That was useful information. The same way that I hated typing classes when I was, you know, in eighth grade and ninth grade. But, you know, then a couple of years ago, I did like a kind of words per minute test. And it was like double what I could ever have done when I was in high school. And I was just like, oh that that stuck in there and it and it got better with practice. But I think for musicians and creative artists, you know, I, I think it's it's certainly tough. And and again, I do think it's kind of situational where it's like I've had teachers who were, you know, super liberating with, you know, kind of creativity and creating space for creating stuff and being flexible with that. Yeah, you know, and I've also had some teachers who I really didn't care for. I think there are improvements that can be made. But, again, I don't think I'm smart enough to be the one to pick, like, the specific improvements that should be made. I think that's the wisdom that I have is that I'm not that wise, but I know this. Uh-
0: <laughs> that's important. Yeah. It's important to know yeah. where kind of where your yeah. strengths are.
1: Although, you can have some conversations with me where it will seem like I've forgotten that statement <laughs> that I just made.
0: Um, yeah, same for, for yeah. me. yeah, yeah. How well do schools prepare kids for the real world? In some ways pretty well, in some ways not. Like I think, you know,
1: it's a lot easier to deal with kind of a five day work week because that's been my entire life pretty much has been, you know, doing school for five days a week and then having a two day weekend. And so, I mean, at least if this is the world that I'm gonna be in, it prepared me pretty well for that. Now, should the work week or the school week be five days or four days or six days or whatever, I don't know five seems all right. But if that's kind of what we have, I, I think I was prepared decently for that. I think, I think in some ways, my generation was very much sold on the idea of like, you know, you're going to go to college, going to get a degree, and then you'll, you know, be able to find a job, no problem. And it's just not the world that we've entered. It's not the adulthood we've entered into for a lot of us. I mean, certainly it's the most millennials are employed and, you know, have jobs and whatever. And, but I think for, I remember when I went to Oregon State at orientation, someone, one of the speakers mentioned something like, you know, for every three engineering graduates that we're going to have, there's one spot, there's one engineering position.
0: And the more automation and technology takes yeah. over, the fewer those jobs are there. Yeah,
1: I saw this thing online that I think summed it up really well, where it was like, you know, go to, go to college so you can get a degree so you don't end up flipping burgers, and then... You know being unemployed after college, what you think you're too good to flip burgers <laughs> and it was just like, yeah, I mean, I think that's one thing is I think that's one thing i I don't like the quote unquote system does is there are a lot there's lots of work that it devalues right, and I'm of the position that like if it's worth paying someone to do, it obviously has value. we've assigned monetary value to it now, sure, we can disagree on whether the work that a you know, professional athlete or actor does probably shouldn't result in way more money than an educator, like a teacher or whatever. You look like you've got some thoughts.
0: Oh no, I'm just, I'm listening. I'm yeah. feeling what you're saying,
1: but so it's the kind of thing where I, I think it's really easy to devalue people because of that, because we've, we've gone through that system of like get a good degree. So you don't have to get the bad job Right. as opposed to, you know, get a degree so you can get the job you want, which, okay, to be fair, we also got that too, but it was that very, like, you can be whatever you want to be. And I think that's a great sentiment, but like, you know, maybe get, maybe get like a business degree Just be safe.
0: (laughs) Uh, Right. Yeah, it's tough. There's the whole idea of I'm going to study something and have something else to fall back on Mm -hmm. type thing. Or put all your eggs in one basket and go for one thing. Right. And then there are a lot of people that are not gainfully employed enough to be able to even pay their debts and, and get by in a in a way that isn't extremely stressful, you know?
1: Well, and I, and I think it's it's really easy for things to become kind of like, you know, one track or too many tracks to look at. Sure. Because I think with college and picking a major, as a 18, 19-year-old kid, you're deciding what you're going to do for the rest of your life. And, and again, you know, there's some... Some movability with certain degrees have more universal applicability than others. Like, my wife has a sociology degree, amongst other things, but that's way more applicable than my general music degree, you know, because sociology affects a lot of different
0: things. Yeah, I agree. I mean, sociology is important, and I think people that understand sociology can do a lot of different Mm. things. I also know, as a lifelong musician, music is problem-solving. Mm -hmm. And if you can figure out how to solve problems, you can kind of do anything. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I
1: mean, you know, that's kind of problem solving is kind of the way that I teach uh, ear training to my students when I'm trying to get them to really get into the habit of being able to identify things. So not just hearing a chord and knowing it's a chord, but, you know, hearing a chord and being able to go, that's a C chord, Mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to a G chord or whatever. But, you know, going back to elementary school problem solving sheets guess and check, baby. You know, just like for that, that, that's the one that I kind of default to is that it's like, you know, okay, it sounds like this. I'll try this. Okay. It wasn't that, but it sounded kind of close. Let me try this thing. That's relatively adjacent or sounds like this note. Okay. It sounds like as far from that note as it could possibly be. So I need to try something completely different yeah but yeah no I think that I think that's a I think that's a pretty reasonable statement music being problem solving I mean and I think you probably find that true with a lot of you know different skills I imagine visual art you have to deal with that a bunch I mean heck I was I was just watching a YouTube video about a couple of different movies where they had to kind of like so like the actor died for instance while they were shooting and so they had to figure out creatively a way to get the film to work even though they've only got Half of the movie shot and the star has died. Or that I think, yeah, I think art a lot of times can be that kind of problem solving because it's, it can feel like kind of tinkering with like a machine or something. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Which I'm awful at.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Calloway. Yes. How important is music to film and video storytelling? I
1: think it is so unbelievably important, just in terms of, and I guess all expanded into like music and sound. Great. But I think in terms of a lot of times, I think music kind of acts as the the sonic setting in terms of if you think about like watching a shot of maybe there's like two actors and they're kind of standing in front of a field or whatever. And you're not really supposed to be focusing on that. You're supposed to be focusing on the actors that they're talking or something they're doing something. But that's what we're supposed to be focusing on. And... So we're not really paying attention to like, you know, what kind of trees are in the background or the little bird that flies ahead, but you strip all that away and you just put that scene in like a black void. Now it feels super weird because we're missing a really important sense. And I think that can be similar with music and, and sound. And I do want to kind of expand it to sound because sometimes the most impactful music is no music, right? You know, you can have, you know, you can have these really, powerful scenes that are accentuated by the music, you know, you think of like the Jaws theme or mm-hmm. you know Psycho the uh, the the violins mm-hmm. just going for all the shrill.
0: Right. Um, yeah, minor seconds and yeah. stuff like that,
1: yeah. And you know, you take like you take those you take that score out of, you know, the intro to Jaws and it's just you're just moving through water. Okay. You take it out of Psycho, it just feels like a weird snuff film. And so I think it's those choices are really impactful and, and important and I think they in, in and of themselves can be really inspiring to musicians and getting people interested in doing music who maybe weren't but I, it, it, it is so fascinating because it's I think it can get undervalued as a as a part of that storytelling because it you know generally does kind of get felt like the the setting but sometimes it is that main focus you know, it's that it's that thing that's memorable I, I've heard some film composers talk about if people notice the music Then I've done my job wrong with that idea of like, this is just to accent the mood at night. And I love that kind of mindset of thinking about it, of just, especially as a guitar player who his inclination is to always be heard. Fill everything. Yeah. Yeah. Right at the front, all the notes. (laughs) Uh, So that idea of like lean back the Hold space back. yeah yeah it's one that I you know I constantly need to remind myself yeah. and train myself to get
0: better with it's a Miles Davis quote the music is yeah. the space between the notes mm-hmm. You know,
1: well yeah I mean there was because at least kind of how I really got into really being super passionate about music was through video games and how music was kind of a storytelling facet of that where, you know, when I got really into Kiss, I had heard them a couple of times before. I think specifically once, like on a road trip with my, with my aunt, it was playing in the car and probably playing on my Game Boy or something. I wasn't really paying attention, but I was like, oh, sounds good. But it was uh, a Tony Hawk skateboarding game is Tony Hawk's Underground that uh, they had a couple of Kiss songs on the soundtrack. And then they had this bonus level you could unlock after you beat the game. That was kind of like out on the kind of, just kind of out in the outback in Australia, but it was like set up like just this big like KISS concert festival thing. And you know, as a, as a 13 year old kid, like the songs grabbed me and I was like, okay, this is cool. And then that video and you know, so then I went and got KISS alive and you know, heard the Black Diamond solo and that was like, I want to do that. That's amazing. I, wa- I want to play the guitar. I want to do that. Um, and that all happened from just you know, the fact that I got Tony Hawk's Underground on the GameCube for my birthday when (laughs) I was thirteen. So I think it, it can it can be that kind of driver, even when it's not driving the main focus of like a story or a medium, it can still be that it can still emerge from that as the main driver for someone's enjoyment of a thing. Yeah. Um, oh, I remember, <laughs> I remember the thing that I, when I was kind of thinking about that question, I remembered the thing I'd written down was I kind of described it as it's like, it's like MSG for storytelling. Okay. You can still get by without it. Like books exist, right? Books don't have music. They don't need music. Like they get by fine. But when you get like a really good score on a film, it's just that thing that takes it from like, this tastes good to like,
0: it makes it I could that yeah, yeah
1: I could I could consume this all day
0: well and then you can hear it just with the music without mm-hmm. the film and you're just like you're imagining what you saw mm-hmm. in the film okay.
1: yeah yeah no for sure yeah there are there are those scores that are that are really really powerful and and even just yeah again the, the kind of idea like I'm I, I love the idea of composing for that kind of stuff because mm-hmm. I think after you know so many years of you know, growing up as a guitar player and just kind of writing whatever I wanted to write, which was usually rock songs. I've really loved that idea of kind of composing to a specific end. It was something that when I was a kid, you know, doing like creative writing I always hated the (laughs) kind of restrictions. Sure. But, you know, as I've gotten to be a better guitar player and a better musician, those restrictions can be really, really inspiring because now it's like I have to figure out how to do this and I've basically eliminated these things as options because whatever I'm trying to write for won't work. That won't work for that. Right. Um, But yeah, it's, I think it's super important because it is as important a, a setting for the scene as I would argue the the visual background is. Also. Yeah,
0: arguably it is. I think the more senses that we're using when we're consuming any kind of art, yeah. uh, the, the better it is, you know, the deeper baby. it is. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. It's like the spinal tap, the sights, the sounds, the smells of rock and roll. <laughs> you don't want the smells of rock and roll. That's yeah. not a good thing. No, no. <laughs> no, you don't All right. can you tell us about your current projects and where you'd like to focus your energy over the next few years?:
1: Yeah, I've recently been getting you know kind of more and more into like most of my most of my kind of musician career has tended to be like you know really being in one band and one kind of creative outlet at a time mm-hmm. and And I think I've gotten to a place where that still works for me, but when I come up with ideas that, you know, don't fit that vision at all and can't be kind of compromised, but man, this thing's really cool, and I don't want to just let it be dead on arrival. I've been trying to kind of dedicate some more time to writing some stuff like that. I've got a, a buddy from college uh Ryan Zubietta who I have met up with once or twice recently to just kind of do some composing stuff and you know just kind of as a very casual thing stuff that I'd probably record and maybe throw online but playing it live probably probably not but you know I, I definitely at some point would like to kind of write a solo album that cool. could just kind of be whatever
0: it wants to be yeah stylistically um, it can yeah be a little varied yeah um cool. yeah. So. so the solo album I think you had yeah
1: mentioned. it's just kind of Something
0: rattling around the brain that... Would you have acoustic and electric on there? Would it be just you or would you hire or get some guest musicians on there? I
1: think it'd probably be both electric and acoustic. I'm definitely much more comfortable as an electric player, but there's definitely things that I've written on the acoustic guitar that should stay on the acoustic guitar as opposed to writing it on the acoustic and then figuring it out on the electric. But... Yeah, it's. Then I'd probably you know hire. Cause I I can't play drums. I I like the idea of doing all the bass parts myself, but I need to get
0: better at the bass. That's cool. Yeah. I look forward to hearing that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, would you do an EP or a full album, or you see what see where it goes? Yeah, I'll kind of. It's something that I I hope. Is done within the next five years,
1: but I don't anticipate it being like super imminent. So I would like to have like an album's worth of stuff. But if I write twelve songs and four of them are pretty good and the rest of them I'm not really feeling, then I'll I can do an EP. Like sure, just kind of come what may.
0: <laughs> there you go. What are one or two memorable stories from your music career so far?
1: There's uh, like the very first Mr. Pink show we played was at this house party that was just kind of nuts and i won't go into too much detail on that but it was very very cramped and you know just like in a neighborhood in north portland that you know we got the we got the cops called on us because uh one of the people at the party had gone next door and knocked on the door and was just pestering the the neighbors and so they you know called the cops and so we got you know, kind of shut down in the middle of our set. So I'll, I definitely remember that. There were a couple of black market bargain shows we did at the Whiskey in, in Hollywood. There was a summer where, so at that time, so Nathan was still in that band and he's originally from San Diego as was our drummer at that time. So I went down for a summer, I think this was 2014 and worked at a day camp with, with Nathan. And then, you know, we were playing kind of shows around. We, man, we played this show at uh, the venue was Mike's Backyard. It was just a dude's barbecue party that, you know, I think he found us, like, I think we found him on Craigslist or something. So it was one of those things that we went into and it felt super sketch, but then we got there and it was pretty chill and, you know, good food. But the shows we played at the Whiskey, the first one we did, that was a pay-for-play thing, so we had to get tickets and sell them, but um, we were able to get a bunch of people to come up from... San Diego to make the drive up cuz it was on the weekend. Uh, my mom and sister actually flew down for that one too, which was really fun. But yeah, it was a it was a really fun show. You know, we had the place packed. We met some other really cool musicians or the band, the Aviators that we met who they're out of Bakersfield who if you like that kind on of a straight ahead rock and roll, they're definitely a band to check out. Yeah, we you know, met their met their bass player in the green room upstairs before either of us did our sets and we just started talking and it was just kind of like it was kind of like that scene in in Step Brothers where Will Ferrell and John C. Riley just kind of immediately like without the without the weeks of tension but you know as they've kind of come together and realized all these common interests they have and they're just like we just become best friends (laughs) Yup, it was it was one of those things where it was up there and just kind of doing the casual like you know hey what band are you in? Oh, I'm in this band and you um I'm in that band. Oh yeah, right. What you, what kind of stuff do you guys do? Oh, we do like rock and roll stuff. And it's like, oh yeah, we we do too. Like what kind of stuff? Who who are your inspirations? And it's like, oh, these guys, these guys, these guys. Me too. Really? Yeah. You want to you want to come camping with us next <laughs> week? Where are you guys going to do it? Dan's backyard. Like <laughs> it was just it was it was just so much fun. They're they were they're a great group of guys. Um the second one we did we sold hardly any tickets, because it was the end of August, and it was on a Sunday. But we met a guy who had played guitar for George Clinton briefly, and he dug our set, which was super cool.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so I definitely remember that. There was a, There was a show we played in Corvallis that was just kind of this big outdoor kind of party thing with a bunch of students, you know, kind of at the end of midterms and everybody's going wild and crazy, and that was our first show with um, our bass player at that time, Austin Moon. Um, it was his very first show with us, and as we're kind of finishing up that last song, you know, we're kind of hammering on that chord and letting it ring out, you know, the da na 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 you know, just kind of letting everything, you know, the big kind of build up before that last hit, and so, you know, I'm, I'm like slamming on my guitar, and I kind of look back behind me, and, um, you know, Austin has gone from playing his bass to just ripping the strings off of it, which I wouldn't want to do that on a guitar. And those strings are like so little. And on the, ba- just, you know, and it was kind of, he it was like, he was kind of bouncing it from a string a little bit as he was like trying to rip it, just kind of letting gravity do the work. So I just kind of turned and I was like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. <laughs> and, you know, and I just made like the dumbest faces. I looked back and it was just floored. But, you know, it was like, there were probably a couple hundred people there, and everybody was just having a great time and unwinding. And I'll definitely, I'll definitely remember that for a while. That one was, that one was pretty fun. And recording our, recording our EP was really fun. We did that over at Rex Post Studios with uh, Brent and Houston, who were phenomenal guys. And that was the first big recording experience that I had. That was in like a good studio, yeah, and, and not like someone's living room right um <laughs>
0: you
1: know or uh or their garage you know so working with them was a lot of fun um
0: did you get it mastered there as well or oh uh,
1: no somewhere we else? got it mastered by kevin, kevin hahn. hahn yeah okay mm-hmm. that's what i thought um yeah no he he did a great job with that too it was like recording it was a blast and getting back the you know the kind of um the unmastered tracks after they got mixed was really cool and then sent them off to kevin and then they came back and it was just like, oh, it's like now they pop. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um,
0: That's amazing. Yeah. So what are some books, artists, musicians, photographers, creative people that you would recommend people check out? Yeah. Anything I, that comes to mind?
1: You know, I I don't read as often as I should anymore. Because you've learned so
0: much. Yeah. There's, there's no
1: more reading to be done. No, <laughs> no, not at all. I, maybe just my attention span has just vanished. But, you know. I I really liked like I really like George Orwell. I've had a lot of fun reading his stuff especially when I was a teenager and kind of finally starting to understand political stuff when reading Animal Farm and kind of understanding the allegories that that's making and kind of having that moment of like, oh, this this is talking about this, but it really means this. You know, that kind of sensation with a with a, you know, more nuanced topic than like the Bolshevik revolution and whatnot. I really liked 1984 as far as books go. You know, in terms of reading, I tend to really just kind of not textbook reading, but you know, it's a lot more of that just kind of reading on a topic thing, you know. Sure. Yeah. Not as much tied into a story, which I love stories, but I just, that's the kind of reading that I've defaulted into. You know, there's, I really like video essays like that people will do on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Lindsay Ellis does these great pop culture ones. And usually they're rooted around, like, film or television or something like that. Or just the kind of minutiae of culture and especially how it, it has advanced and evolved in the in the 21st century. That if you're into needlessly in-depth analyses of, you know, just kind of any movies, like Disney movies. Or she, she had, like, a nine-part series on examining, like, the Transformer movies from all these different kind of theoretical standpoints, and they're fascinating. Like, I didn't really enjoy those. Those movies were not for me, but watching or listening to her kind of critiquing them, I, you know, I've really enjoyed. That's fun.
0: I like that.
1: Oh, yeah. I did already mention Rex Post, but, you know, Brent and Houston are great, and you should check out anything and everything they do. Photographers, we just did a photo shoot with Scotty Fisher uh, in Sleeper Studios, and that was excellent you know you can find those on our social media and i think a lot of them came out really well paul brown who you might know
0: of course um yeah yeah i interviewed him for oh, the there podcast. You, there you go yeah. so yeah so you all know then
1: um <laughs> but yeah he you know he he did the photos at my wedding and nice. actually the very first show we played at that that house show bad ellie was on that bill too oh nice um yeah, yeah. and so you know he's got his i think he's also in a docking cover band he is. Yeah, yeah okay Cool. I wasn't sure if that was still going or not. Yep. Um, I just I love that that exists. You know, again, kind of going back to video game music, Koji Kondo, who has done so much of, like, the Mario music and right. the Zelda music, okay. it's like, if, if people are playing through any of those games, it's like, you know, just sit for a minute and just, like, listen to the music because it's, it's unbelievably fascinating. And there's actually a YouTube channel called 8-Bit Music Theory that I've become a huge fan of because it's basically they just... He analyzes different musical concepts through the lens of video game music, but then he'll also examine kind of specific questions, you know, like, wow. what makes Mario music fun? Why is it? F- why does it sound fun? You know, and breaks it down with, like, you know, it's a lot of syncopation, which mm-hmm. feels lively and stuff, and a lot of the melody notes do these big jumps and whatever, which fits because Mario's jumping all around. And again, just that idea of really putting that deliberate intention and thought behind the thing where it's not like he had this song that then nintendo was like hey we need a we need a piece of music for this mario game and he was just like oh i've got this one sitting on the shelf it was like no it was no, written specifically, specifically, around specifically
0: around that idea for those scenes and that stuff it and i just
1: awesome. yeah i just have such an unbelievable respect for people who can do that so well because i don't think it's easy but i do think it's really fun to oh, try yeah. it's incredible yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Find out more at artmedianorthwest.com Media dot com. A R T M E D I A N W dot com.